Hey everyone, Ryan here. Just a quick reminder before we start the show that we have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash left anchor. Uh, if you want to support the show and get access to extra episodes, um, you can sign up there. If not, that's also fine. But uh, thanks for listening in any case. Let's get started. Welcome back to Left Anchor. I'm Alexi the Greek. And I'm Ryan Cooper. Welcoming to the podcast, uh, Mr. John Gans. Am I saying that right? Yeah. Wow. Right in one. I'm 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 firing on all cylinders today, baby. But uh, John is a freelance writer in New York um, and uh, has a a Substack, which I should plug. It's quite good, I think. Uh, yep, uh, com, if I'm not mistaken. Um, we'll throw a link to that in the description. Anything else? Anything else you want to mention about your... Uh, uh, no, not really. That's kind of mainly what I'm working on at the moment. Uh, recently had a piece in the New Republic as well um, that's coming out in the magazine, but is available online. Great. Yep. But, uh, you know, got some, got some writing out there uh, if you want to check it out. Great. So the reason we want to talk to you is to, to start out, you know, there's has been this question of uh, fascism sort of bubbling up in, in the takes, in the online. Um, and, you know, ma- mainly is Trump a fascist? Is he some sort of proto-fascist? What like like what relationship does fascism have? Uh, you know, you have sort of various camps. You have the Corey Robin. Corey Robin said, I think, very inadvisably that it's the exact opposite of fascism, which is extremely not a phrase I would use with regard to Trump. But I think I think um, in fairness, he. In the context of his piece, he was talking about one specific thing, but yeah, I mean, sure, I, I sure, agree sure. with that too. Yeah, and we yeah. should say Corey is a great friend of the pod. You know, we've had yeah, him no, no, yeah, but it's just the, yeah, he's been this, on here. We we don't we don't hate him. We're not canceling him. We're not canceling Corey Robin, <laughs> uh, folks. We I, are I, not. I strongly disagree with him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah uh, but it's I a think fruitful on this, debate though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I think it is interesting and I think it does matter for more than semantic reasons. Um, And so, you know, can you start out with your your perspective here? Um, Is he is the Trump movement sort of, you know, quasi fascist, proto fascist, some some uh, whatever want to label you want to stick on it and and why? Uh, What categories what 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 definition are you using here? So I would say close enough. Um, I would say that, you know, from, from my my first reaction or, or impression of Trump and the politics he was practicing was that there was something kind of fascist about it. And obviously he doesn't have the same breadth or depth of organization as classical fascist movements. And, you know, he's there's 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 lots of differences. But I would say that there's a structure, um, an argument, if you if you even want to use that that term about the country and uh, the, the crisis that it faces and who's responsible for it um, and how it should be solved. So basically, you know, the United States is in some kind of uh, decline or decadence or is weak. And, you know, often the, the, the metaphors used are, are, you know, disease. And he has a book called crippled America and there, you know, a, feckless class of elites is, is responsible for, for this decline, uh, often, you know, and also racial minorities, this sort of moves around as need be. It's not very coherent, um, 
about which ethnic minority is, is really to blame, or even if he's actually saying, if he's actually targeting ethnic minorities, um, which he clearly is, but, you know, there's lots of, you know, coded and semi-coded language. And he has a providential almost role of, of uh, recovering the nation and all opposition to him and his power and rule is illegitimate. Um, so I would think, I would say this, this structural argument about the underlying myth or belief of Trump's political career and what kinds of fantasies surround him and, and is definitely fascist, uh, or, you know, has a fascist structure is what I like to say. And I think my, you know, what I said is evidence for this is that fascist, actual self-conscious neo-Nazis and fascists who are, you know, as critics of this argument rightly point out, are not a huge constituency in the United States. You know, it's a, it's a hardcore people and um, they are not, you know, participating in mass politics in the same way the Republican Party or the Democratic Party is. But when they saw him emerge, they were very excited by his the politics he was practicing. And I think that's because they know, all right, well, Trump might not be Hitler, which we would we we're hoping for, but this is closer, this kind of demagogy and, you know, <laughs> um, smearing of racial minorities and, and anti-democratic and authoritarian stances, even when, you know, he can't follow through on them, are much closer to the kind of politics than um, than had been practiced uh, in the U.S. for for some time, and that was exciting to them. Um, and you know, they continue to rally around his his uh, leadership uh, and and presidency or, or former presidency as is a kind of you know center point of their their political movement. Um, I want to say that the arguments that he is not a particularly powerful organizer and doesn't have this, the kind of party structure of a classical fascist movement. And, you know, these, these organizations are kind of loosely uh, inspired by him and not, you know, like tightly controlled through, you know, um, people he directly can point to. It's not like, you know, Mussolini or Hitler, I mean, even though, you know, their control over their movements was actually tenuous sometimes and they had to fight with internal factions and so on and so forth. So it's not fascism in the classical sense, I will admit, but yeah. there is there is a there is a fascist structure and it's inspiring a fascist type of politics. And I think it's and my argument is that, you know, I understand, you know, I, I think a lot of people are afraid that if you use the term fascism, it's more appropriate. They think it's more appropriate. It's a ter- it's a term of propaganda and abuse, and it's more of something that that is appropriate to political pamphlets and not to someone who has a sophisticated take on politics. You know, you know, we we, we can we can differentiate between you know the many different types of right wing authoritarianism and so on and so forth. I, I think I, okay, that's fine. But but I would say there are actually you know for for partly for what I've, I've, I've laid out, there are quite compelling reasons to begin to talk about fascism and U.S. politics today. And it's not an inappropriate 
context to bring in. And I think that's that's what it's it's not so important to label Trump a fascist or his movement a fascist. It's just saying this particularly virulent style of reactionary politics is an appropriate touchstone when we're looking at a, 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 a source, when we're looking at the way these types of right wing practices are are being are, are, are happening now in the U.S. It's 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 okay to read these books and to and to glean historical lessons from them. It it is not completely an alien world that has nothing to do with the contemporary U.S. I would say you know they have some important lessons. So that's basically my position in a nutshell. Um, I don't think. Sorry, uh, I am going on for quite a while, but yeah. No, right, no. All right. Do you want to jump in, Ryan, or, or should I? Uh, I have, let me just add a little, um, you know, people talk about there, there are, uh, you know, various like sort of, sort of quasi fascist elements in the uh, American history. Jim Crow is like kind of fascist adjacent, but, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Eric Hobsbawm. Um, and, and I've got his book, the age of extremes here. And I think I've got a couple of little, uh, little quotations that I've picked out that I think shed a little bit of light on, on, you know, because I think you're talking fascism, fascism is a European phenomenon. And I think it is, I think it is, it is somewhat, you know, uh, I mean, it's worth thinking about, uh, in the American context, but also, you know, let's, let's think about the actual fascist regime regimes in Italy and Germany. So Hobsbawm says in the age, uh, the age of extremes, um, uh, the right wing backlash, he's talking about the, uh, the, the 1920s and 1930s, the right wing backlash responded not against Bolshevism as such, but against all movements and notably the organized working class, which threatened the existing order of society or could be blamed for its breakdown. Lenin was the symbol of this threat rather than the actual reality, which for most politicians was represented not so much by the socialist labor parties whose leaders were moderate enough but by the upsurge of working class power, confidence, and radicalism, which gave the old socialist parties a new political force and, in fact, made them the indispensable props of liberal states. Uh, skipping a little bit. For extre- uh, extremist movements of the ultra-right had existed before 1914, hysterically nationalist and xenophobic, idealizing war and violence, intolerant and given to strong-arm coercion, passionately anti-liberal, anti-democratic, anti-proletarian, anti-socialist, and anti-rationalist, dreaming of blood and soil and a return to the values which modernity was disrupting. They had some political influence within the political right and in some intellectual circles, but nowhere did they dominate or control. What gave them their chance after the First World War was the collapse of the old regimes and with them of the old ruling classes and their machinery of power, influence, and hegemony. Where these remained in good working order, there was no need for fascism. Skipping just a little bit. One more little section here. The optimal conditions for the triumph of the crazy ultra-right were an old state and its ruling mechanisms which could no longer function, a mass of disenchanted, disoriented, and discontented citizens who no longer knew where their loyalties lay, strong socialist movements threatening or appearing to threaten social revolution but not actually in a position to achieve it, and a move of nationalist resentment against the peace treaties of 1918-1920. These were the conditions in which helpless old ruling elites were tempted to have recourse to the ultra-radicals, as the Italian liberals did to Mussolini's fascists in 1920-22, and as German conservatives did to Hitler's National Socialist in 1932-33. And so, 
uh, it's again, not a perfect analogy, but I think why it matters is that you see how, like when this kind of like a, uh, a a capitalist state tent, you know, undergoing like a kind of similar conditions, like it's not hard to see the echoes, the resonance in what I was just reading there. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you, you see a window for very extreme, uh, uh, politics on the far right come through. And the point is not to say fascist, you know, and like in a sort of intellectual sense to say that like, if, you know, this just keeps going and going and going and like Republicans take power and overturn democracy as they try to do on January 6th, the consequences could be horrible in the extreme. I mean, we're, I think mass, like some kind of genocide or mass murder you know, Jakarta method in Indonesia type of thing is not at all out of the question. I mean, maybe, you know, who knows what the probability is, but you know, the fact that you can't rule it out, it's just like climate change, you know, the, the worst, the worst, uh, the, the worst possibility, even if it's a low probability is worth, you know, doing something about that. And so that, you know, seems to me like why this is an important discussion. I would say, yeah. I mean, the, to me, a lot of one of the arguments that's given against, you know, my position or the position who say who say it's fair enough to call call Trumpism fascism or say it's adjacent to fascism is that we lack in the United States a large socialist left that's a threat to the ruling order. But um, that's not the case really in the in the um, imagination of the right wing. They clearly believe that there is some kind of looming socialist threat. And basically socialism was what they call any kind of reasonable appearance of multiracial democracy where everybody actually votes and there's policies that are popular and so on and so forth. So there is somewhat of a belief that there is a socialist threat and there's a lot of paranoid, uh, you know, conspiracy theories about socialism and so forth and a lot of fear of socialism. So it's not, it's not exactly we have an organized um, proletarian working class movement that's that's really scary to old elites. But there's clearly, and, and I think a lot of the critics of um, of the fascism thesis point this out correctly, is that in the U.S. the right is 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 having a lot of trouble getting um, a mass of voters behind it and mass support. And you know, I think that this crackpot demagogic kind of quasi fascist appeals are really the only things that they have left because the substance of conservative philosophy that we knew it before the kind of Trump synthesis was just so bankrupt and unpopular. And the, so I would say the recourse to something like a fascist politics is, you know, is a move of desperation. Um, I think it, I have a slightly more sanguine hope for the future than you were outlining, I don't necessarily see those things happening. I I I think that it, this is not a very good fascism, and it's got a lot of weaknesses. So <laughs> this this I'm taking my fascism back to the fascism store. It's it's low quality. 
Yeah, it was cheap, but low, low quality. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I hope and I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, and there, and you know, in, his, in historically, there there are examples of failed fascisms, which are kind of ignored by by sometimes the people who make the right. arguments that this can't be fascist because they always pointed the strength and success which of fascist movements, which were quite lucky in certain ways and used political crises. Yeah. And the second thing I, I would say about your point about the, the, you know, the worst possible outcome, I agree with you. I would say that there is, there's an argument that's made against this, this, you know, the, the calling Trump fascism where they would say, if you look at things in terms of the worst possible outcomes, it limits your imagination about what political, political possibilities you can accomplish because you're constantly be disciplined according to fighting off this horrible threat. I have the exact opposite view, actually. I think that what we, what was revealed by this kind of quasi fascism or incipient fascism or real fascism, whatever that we've faced is that the stakes are extremely high and we need to make very sweeping um, reforms in, in our society in order to, to, repair the kind of rot that gave rise to this. So I don't think it's something that limits the political imagination. And I would say that anti-fascism as a tradition is one of the most attractive traditions in the, on the left to people who maybe are not familiar with left-wing ideas. I mean, certainly, you know, it, it definitely associates you with the good guys. Um, <laughs> and I think that it, it, it also, you know, it also opens the conversation to people about the problems, about more structural issues in our society, because then people begin to wonder why we arrived at this point. And they begin to ha ask historical questions and ask structural questions and say, how could we have come to this juncture where the society becomes so incredibly broken? And, you know, of course, there is a there is a non progressive uh, not reactionary, but conservative use of this discourse, which is just says, look, there's an emergency and we have to, you know, just get behind the, the, the most center normal politics possible in order to, to, to offset some kind of catastrophe. But if you look at what's actually happening, I don't think that that's the really, I mean, look, I don't have excessively high hopes for, what the Biden administration is going to do, but the, what the noises they are making are more in the direction of, oh, we can't make mistakes of the past that allowed Trump to happen. We must make some bold actions now. So I, I think that the argument, the, the practical argument, that if you use an anti-fascist politics, you're constraining yourself to a politics of emergency and an unimaginative politics of trying to constrain, uh, just just hold this this beast at bay and and. I, I think that it, it's a politics that, that calls for coalition building and alliances, but is not a non-activist politics. So I, I disagree with that point. Um, and I think that, you know, yeah, so that's my two responses to those arguments, which are kind of brought up by your by your talking about, um, you know, interwar Europe. Yeah, I, I think it's really helpful. And you already kind of answered part of what I wanted to get into next, because I, I want to separate out two things that I think are going on, which makes sense because theory and praxis are so intermingled. Uh, but on the left, especially 
so much focus by theorists and, and others is on what work is being done when you're arguing something, right? And, and you just kind of spoke to that, like what kind of politics is going to emerge? And, and it and it strikes me, and I, I don't know how it strikes you about what what the the motivation is for the debates that are that are been going on, uh, but so much of it is focused on that fear that we're going to maybe forget about how pernicious and insidious neoliberalism is and how that created created the conditions for Trump, um, and 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 other like functional arguments about what work is being done. Um, and so, and so you kind of just spoke to that, but like, how should we think about that? And then just on the theoretical level too, then, you know, there, there are these kind of, um, these, as we've talked about these language games that are entered into, it seems to serve that, that, that purpose, that latter purpose. Right. Uh, so what do you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I mean, you have to look at the consequences of, discourse or what have you or theory and and think about what issues from it. I do think that what's interesting and contradictory about the insisting that uh, this will lead the same people who say, let's not make too many historical analogies also are building this off a historical analogy of their own, which is that in the U S um, anti-fascism gave way in, in to a kind of security logic of the Cold War of Cold War right. liberalism, um, where authoritarianism, totalitarianism were the absolute worst thing in the world, and everything was just about holding that at bay. So they they are like, well, don't don't look at history because we know what history like we know yeah. our we have our own little historical narrative about that. So they you know they're they're and you know they're very interesting things about this. Like the, the history of Cold War liberalism is fascinating and there are a lot of lessons to be learned there, I would agree. And I would say, you know, you know, the, the pre-war and early war Brown scare and how that led to the, the, the red scare, you know, there, there's a lot of very interesting yeah. history there, but this is all, it's, it's strange to make an argument against historical analogy that's based on another right. set of historical. They, they also use the Patriot Act and, and another, other historical analogies to uh, make sure that we don't react to this by ramping up the state's kind of police forces, right? In response to it, which is, it's fair. Like all these points are fair, but can't we just like guard against those problems also? I think the more sophisticated and in the, and a corollary of that is let's not let leave mainstream Republicans off the hook because they're really not so different from Trump, which I'm, I'm totally right. on board with right. that. What, what I think is, is missing um, or, or, or what they, what they don't like to face is that most of the more sophisticated people who take this position are not arguing for um, letting anybody off the hook or going. They, they say, um, well, yes, in the I mean, a lot of my writing about the right is about this. There, there were where there were the 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 antecedents and seeds of this kind of horrible uh, breakdown of sanity that were around for a long time and were were swept under the rug and ignored and and managed in a very irresponsible way by the Republican Party and the Democratic Party to its own in its own way. And the other half of that is there was there's a lot of great critical thinking and about how our security logic and the built the birth of the Department of Homeland Security um, and the kind of imperialism that we pre- we practiced, you know, post in the war on terror. Also, you know, have given rise to these sort of fascist structures mm-hmm. and also, you know, the most Trumpy part of the of the of the state was was the deep was was Department of Homeland Security, which is very frightening. And I think so. I think that the yeah, I'm completely with um, 
I'm completely with the with the critics of the fascism argument when they when they talk about oh, you know, the police state, the 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 security administrative state that that has grown really needs another look, and yeah. it needs you know it can't we can't just allow it to continue to grow and continue to grow. I do think you know there. Let's face it, there are. I think that this is a political. Like this is where I, I I say there's there are people on the in on liberals and on, on some even leftists who are like well look you know we just need to get the FBI on these guys and blah blah, which is yeah some of them are actually criminals you know they probably could be dealt with with you know administrative police whatever but it's not really a it's not really an administrative problem it's a political problem and that's why I think it makes sense to talk about having an anti-fascist politics that mm-hmm. sort of sort of rallies the. Um, country around a shared sense of democratic faith and we're not all going to agree about what that means but it is a framework um for beginning to talk about you know what policies and what programs can repair the country and then when you start to say look these are popular and you say they have democratic legitimacy these are weapons in the anti-fascist war or crusade. That's attractive. Yeah. Yeah. It's attractive. So, well, uh, this speaks to your piece on socialist unrealism because I, I think anti-fascist politics is socialist politics, broadly understood. Right. And, and people could get on board with both of those as being antagonistic to whether it's the Trump version or the status quo reactionary or neoliberal oppression that works through institutions. Right. These are different, different like forms of the virus, if you will, that need to be combated and we can identify them differently, but we need the same type of socialist anti-fascist politics. It seems to me. And so like the theoretical work, in my opinion, would be well served by unifying the left uh, against those different variants and and not getting too hung up. Uh, because what are the stakes about like how exactly we we differentiate these, these different, you know, fascist viruses, it seems to me. I mean, even Hitler was inspired by the US, right? And then the white supremacy here. So so these 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 things are these things are all linked, you know. Um, exactly. And I think, I think there's a, okay, here, here's the other danger or, or, or I think that, that there's a, you know, neoliberalism is not a million years old. It is a, it's a regime, a policy and an intellectual cultural regime that, that, you know, that grew up in the, in the last 50 years or 60 years. Um, and it, it, is not synonymous with liberal democracy. And that's a really important um, distinction to make, that we've seen liberal democracy with different intellectual ruling hegemonic ideas about, um, you know, the relationship between labor and capital and um, what, you know, workplace workplaces should look like and, and, and all these questions. So I think it's a real danger and also just cutting yourself off from political power to, to identify neoliberalism and liberal democracy and say every, every institution um, in a liberal democracy is necessarily neoliberal and corrupt. Um, and it's unreformable. Um, I think that the right doesn't have this conception. They, they are very worried and feel almost in despair over what they, they, see to be liberal and left-wing power over culture, over, you know, the, 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 the mainstream of civil society in our country. And that kind of gives me hope because I think that they are right, 
that they are on the on the retreat in in a lot of these these areas. Now, there is look. This is sort of getting to my piece on uh, Gramscians and Sorellians. Great. Yeah. So I don't want to minimize the criticism of like I'm not just saying oh well everything was wonderful and let's get back to it. That's that's not what I'm saying. I think okay. But I do think that you can admit that even when you accomplish some kind of uh, success in altering some institutions, that they will never quite get it right. That those inst- they will always do a compromise, sellout version of it. And strategically, you say, well, I know they're doing the sellout version of it, and I'm going to keep pressing on it. And I'm going to keep pressing on it. I'm going to keep pressing on it rather than say, oh, well, they're like no imaginable good can come out of these institutions. So I don't every time they pretend that they're adopting my politics or they're or they're paying lip service to the ideologies that I believe in. It's a lie. It's out to fool me. I mean, it is and it isn't. It is a compromise. It is a compromise. It is designed to try to get people to go back to sleep. But then it gives you an opening to 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 push on and say like well you said you made the commitment to this and now you have to you have to live up to this commitment and you continue to organize around those spaces and those ideas yeah yeah and and so we're kind of talking about electoralism at the moment right like that's, electoralism, that's electoralism and i don't think it's only electoralism it's also right. all sorts of grassroots organizing or when you put pressure on elites in all sorts of ways yep. where you say look you you made a commitment to this ideal and now you're yeah. not living up to it, and 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 you have to live up to this ideal, and right. you know that is a that's a powerful as we've seen in the last four years. That can be a very powerful movement. And this, uh, I I, I want to get to Sor- Sor- the Sorellians versus Gramscians piece, but I but I but just to tie off this dis- discussion here, um, you you know you you talk about how you know the centrists can make the argument that Joe Biden made. You know, it's like okay, everybody's got to get behind me to do terrible, corrupt neoliberalism, you know, but like you could easily turn that on its head and be like, look, we had your politics for eight years and that produced Trump. And so what you need to do is something that is more popular and more lefty. And it's like, well, okay, do we know that that like lefty policy is popular and you can actually cement a pro-democracy coalition? I mean, it depends on the policy, but one policy that is very popular is the checks. Everybody loves the checks. And this, you know, I mean, I don't know if this is Andrew Yang, UBI libertarianism. I mean, I would say, you know, per capita, they are means tested, which sucks. But like most people get the checks and they fucking love the checks. I was just looking at a poll coming out of Georgia. Uh, You know, a lot of interesting results. Trump, pretty unpopular, very underwater in Georgia. Biden doing very well. The checks poll at plus 56 points. Like, all, like it's, do you like puppies and, and like apple pie, you know, is America good? Like in, in Georgia, not, not a super liberal state. And that, you know, there's this argument going on about whether it's 2000 or 1400. I think that is like That's less important. The point, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they should do 2000. Let's be clear about that. Just for no reason other than fuck it. Why not? But like. I think you see that here's an ideological pressure point to say where, you know, the centrists like who are all very uncomfortable about the checks because they, you know, they're worried about the masses getting hooked on the government teat, you know, yep. but like 
people are like the I I think that there was a whole, you know, a whole just huge swath of the population which basically thought that the government had never done anything for them in their lives. And that was like, here's uh here's free money from Mr. Trump. And uh, you know, he had a little letter. I mean, I got that damn thing. I still have it someplace, which is like, here's your free money from Mr. Trump. And I think a lot that that was a big reason why he did as well as he he had. And if Biden can reclaim the same thing and say twelve hundred, fuck you, fourteen hundred, two thousand, you know, it's like raise the ante. That I think, you know, the logic of anti-fascism goes away from neoliberalism towards like you know, something like social democracy, whatever you want to call it, not deregulation in markets and fucking the capitalists running everything. Absolutely. And I think there's historical precedent for that, which is the two great popular front um, governments in history were quite radical. Um, first, you know, the U.S. in the 1930s, I mean, not radical enough, but, you know, it made made real strides for, for working people in this country and improve their lives and had programs that the right try as it may has never been fully able to get rid of. And the popular yeah. front, and the popular front in France was the most radical, which was was you know came to a bad end. Let's face it, but but was the most radical uh, government you know um, the third republic had seen, I, I think, and was organized around anti-fascism, included communist socialists and 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 you know the the so-called radicals who were kind of centrist liberals, but um, they. That popular front, uh, France saw an enormous amount of strikes, mass movements, and a lot of uh, changes to relationships between labor and capital behind an anti-fascist coalition. Um, and it was there was a lot of mass mobilization. It wasn't demobilizing. There was nothing demobilizing about the popular front. So it was a, it was a popular mobilization to defeat fascism. Um, and I think that it. You know, when that happens, a lot of a lot of really great, uh, you know, moves forward for for working people in in the in the country um, can happen. So yeah. But as as you say though, because I, I remember in, in the, t- the the Twitter battles stand out in my mind, and so I think it was uh, William Clare Roberts who, who was talking about. Well, well, does this mean that we have to like support the Democrats in the Biden administration? And, and I don't know if the, what the response was, but of course the response should be, well, no, it's not that you support them, as as we've been saying, you push them and cajole them and try to use them, um, and then while you still primary them. In fact, maybe Schumer today had a, had a bit of insight because he has this looming possible threat of being primaried. Um, you know, so so how can how should we conceptualize uh, working against and with and through uh, the Democratic Party and, and those who would be naturally resistant to emancipatory politics? Yeah, I mean, well, look, I mean, I think in a way, um, I okay, my my primary interest in, in writing about politics is about the right and the conservative movement, and what I what I, and, and how the real crazies in the conservative movement, I guess we are the crazies on the left, but I, I don't <laughs> think we're bad. False equivalent, sir. False equivalent. <laughs> how they, how they, you know, um, got power or put pressure and made life difficult for the, for the GOP and mainstream GOP politicians. And they formed a block of opinion. Um, and, you know, that that became formidable and the republican politicians 
either became, were, were them, were, were members of this movement, or if not, they had to adopt the language and style of this movement and often had to deal with its revolts when it was, I think they, okay, don't get me wrong. I think that the way that there's, there's, there's things not to do. I think obviously the way the conservative and this kind of, you know, I think is, is an important thing to think about is the way the conservative movement related to the GOP and to the U.S. government was extremely destructive and mm-hmm. um, irresponsible and nihilistic. And I don't, I don't, I think you can, you can have a, you know, a kind of well organized, militant, even political movement without being nihilist and without being, you know, destructive and realizing that there are compromises that will need to be made and so on and so forth. I think, um, you know, there, but there are lessons in the, in the, in the rise of the right in the way that they organized and, you know, became a formidable block of, of public opinion and expression of a movement, um, which I think actually really, to be honest with you, I mean, they, they kind of got, they've gotten popular support, but they've lost it now or seeing the morbid symptoms of that. Um, but I think that, you know, if the left, the left could, could really accomplish more, um, because we do have more of a popular mandate. I think that the, the her, time horizon to get something done is longer than the conservative movement who kind of had this brief period of time where they managed to make a message that was popular because of they answered the needs of a crisis. They seem to answer the needs of a crisis of America after the 1970s. And I think the left in a, it is in a similar place where it needs to answer the needs of a crisis. It needs to say the neoliberal establishment and the, and the um, conservative movement um, have led us into a deep crisis in this country that is nearly brought about the end of democratic government. Um, and we cannot, we cannot afford to repeat these mistakes or in these, you know, they're, some of them are crimes, really not mistakes. Um, so I think that that's the, that's the politics I would pursue. I mean, I am not, I think we have to say, look, we have the answers to the crisis that's facing the country. We can provide a better material existence for you and your family and the people you love. And we do not have any kind of other agenda than that. We are not here to, you know, do all the crazy, weird, scary things that that Republicans say about us. It's very it's it's quite straightforward. That's propaganda. And we are going to, you know, quite literally give you more money. (laughs) And and, um, I think that, yeah, the checks is wonderful. Everything about the CARES Act is just phenomenal because we're starting to show for maybe the first time in my lifetime, because I was born under Reagan, the power of the government again to help people in a really profound way. That's, you know, even I mean, we don't see it because we're so atomized during this time. But there are wonderful things happening. I mean, the the mobilization around the ability to vaccinate all these millions of people is kind of awe-inspiring. And like the, the I think that, you know, it just makes me think that that 
that things are possible again. A better world is possible, John. A better world is possible. That's right. A better world. This is, is true. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think that there's going. Hopefully, what will happen? It might be very short. It might might not be a new new deal, but but for 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 some period of time, we're going to hopefully get some something permanent instituted here, where there is something that the right really cannot roll back, some real material improvement in people's lives that the right cannot roll roll back easily because it'll just be too unpopular and too politically fraught. Is that going to be healthcare? I don't know, but I, I think we have to use our imagination and say, well, maybe some things that have come out around the pandemic and meeting people's needs, maybe there's something there um, we can more permanently institute after this is over, something like that. Yeah. So this maybe is a good point to to break into your <clears throat> the piece about uh, the, the, the Gramscians versus the Sorelians. So tell us who is this, this character, George Sorel, uh, and, and what, what sort of tendency are you identifying here? Excuse me. So basically, okay, this, this, I, this, I can't take credit for this, uh, very neat. You're in the Substack now. You got to take credit for it. That's <laughs> a writer named Jacob Siegel on Twitter, who is actually, you know, I don't think he would be offended if I said he was on the right, made this, this point about the, about the right wing that it had its Gramscian phase had ended and it was entering its Australian phase, which as someone who writes about the right, I just thought was a brilliant pithy observation and just right to the point. So basically George Sorel was a um, kind of unorthodox French socialist, uh, social thinker writing around the turn of the century. And he was involved in Marxist politics, involved in labor politics, but he became very disillusioned with the um, assimilation of radical and socialist politics into the framework of the of liberal democracy. And he felt that it was, kind of sucking the vitality and and strength and revolutionary elan out of the socialist movement. And he abandoned Marxism and he kind of came up with his own synthesis, which envisioned um, these kind of, he, he, had, he came up with an idea called the myth of the radical, uh, of the general strike. And he envisioned, you know, workers rising up and having these kind of spontaneous uh, strikes that would be quite violent and shake society to its core and not be contained in the, you know, the negotiations of labor and so on and so forth. And he, he came and he said politics needs these myths, um, these kind of animating ideals that are not subject to factual dispute, uh, disputation. But, you know, fire the passions and imagination of uh, a, a kind of elite um, group of people in society that are, you know, trying to shake things up and accomplish a, a, a radical uh, change in society. Um, and, you know, obviously, this is not – there are problems there. And, and, and you know – I, I, I want to say that I'm not a scholar and I'm, 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 this is just my understanding of it. And then, you know, Gramsci, of course, you know, brings it, I'm not a Gramsci scholar and I'm not saying I know what Gramsci means by any of these things. I'm just using this as a toy concept, a toy model, just to begin a conversation. You know, you know, I would say, you know, Gramsci believed or not Gramsci believed, but the, the, what I described as the Gramsci left is more trying to accomplish 
hegemony through through this working on um, institutions and culture through political organization through you know newspaper editorial writing through podcasts through 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 this through this I mean you know the Sorellian left also has a media and uh, the war of position right exactly Try, yeah exactly trying to you know get uh, left wing ideas and 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 um, programs more publicly accepted um, and that's sort of the Gramscian left and the Sorellian left is very impatient with that effort and is very distrustful of liberal democracy and liberals and, and you know, for, for good reasons in that um, and really wants something meatier, wants something more exciting um, and more radical and less and is, is convinced of the utter or this is my thing with it. I think it's a bit of a pose. Yeah, I think that there's something theatrical about it, or it's a radicalism. It's a cultural revolt. It's a cultural revolt against liberalism, and it's there are. I understand the frustration with both the cultural. Um, Should we give examples? Should we give examples of this just so people know? Kind of uh, like yeah. I don't want to cause like fights on Twitter by naming names, but. We're not going to name any Australians. There shall be no Australians mentioned on this podcast. Well, I mean, that's a very good example of I don't care about. But I would say Amy Therese is, is sort of like a person in this. And this is an ideal. T- is she is she a person? I don't. Does she exist? Yeah, I, she, she exists. I don't know. But I would say Jimmy Dore is a really good example of this. because yeah. he, And like he just I became aware of him. And the moment I became aware of him was I just saw a clip of the video. And I had I didn't. This idea wasn't remotely in my head anymore where Matt Stoller, who I'm not a fan of, by the way, I'm not defending him by saying this, but he was talking in this round table uh, thing with him. And Matt Stoller said something about committees, like getting people on the right committees and fucking Jimmy Dore, like starts screaming at him and calling him a dork and a nerd. It was kind of funny, but like the, the, I was like, Oh, thinking about it now, I was like, Oh, this is a perfect crystallization of this. It's like, this person is talking about these like substantive, procedural slow steps that you have to do to to kind of like take power and and exercise power in in a a democratic society and this guy is like i don't want to do that i want some kind of i want action now action now like i want some kind of some big symbolic movement like this this um you know kind of plebiscite that they want to do for the the medica for all thing which doesn't seem to have a lot of strategic uh, it's it's meant to expose corruption, right? Like that's what they're trying to do. They're not trying to work with them. They're trying to do a dramatic coup. Forgive me for saying this. That will <laughs> show the corruption of the system to the public, who will then revolt. And they're not they're not interested in saying like, oh well, gradually we'll get. Like this guy, like I mean, we'll get Bernie Sanders on the budget committee for. But these pe- these people are, are grifters. I think you're even giving them too much credit because they're they're grifters. I'll, I'll tell you the difference because there's a guy at uh, at one of the I won't say which which uh, Jackman Reading Club, but every single I think every time I went, which is a lot. Uh, every single meeting, you know, we'd have a great discussion over a number of Jacobin articles, and then he would stand up and he would say, uh, "None of that will work. The only thing that will work is violent revolution." And, and and like and, and this is an old dude. This is a guy that's been around. He's seen some shit. He's been around. Like he's been organizing and fighting the good fight for like forty years. He's like, no, no, no. We've tried. We've tried all that. Trust me. The only thing that'll work is violent revolution. And like that dude is different than these idiots, right? 
you know, I just want to differentiate. I want to, I want to, oh, look, I, I also differentiate. I mean, I don't know how many, there's an intellectual rigor to some people in the real radical left who are, have like Marxist Leninist or, 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 or positions and revolutionary or insurrection positions. And I, you know, I disagree strongly and I think it's wrongheaded, but, but I'm not saying, but I would say that this is less about an analysis of the possibilities of politics and more a, a cultural vault opposed. Yeah. Um, and yeah, there is, there is a, there's a market for it because right. yeah. there, a, uh, there is a kind of, not wanting to be suborned into normie liberal culture. Yes. Yeah. And, yeah. And wanting to, they, they desperately, they desperately want to catch out AOC and show that she's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there, there's, there's a, there's a dissatisfaction with normie liberal culture, which they, they think is identical to neoliberalism, which is sort of a bad, uh, it's not quite the same thing. And, um, they think there's a hypocrisy, a corruption. The, the real problem is liberal culture and the culture of liberal democracy by an extension. And the, the thing is to shake up, to shock the bourgeoisie, um, and to adopt these sort of absurd poses and d- demands and declarations. And also to kind of often, but they take paradoxically quite conservative opinions about things. Like a lot of these people will not really criticize the police. Right. They they think that they're it's like they have this kind of workerist defense of the police as like blue collar guys, which is just ignoring like two hundred years of left <laughs> thinking. So and and like um, yeah, that's why it's the red brown alliance, right? Right, right. So and there's a lot of curiosity among these people about the um, the right, the culture of the radical right, which they view as truly radical. The, the thing is, is that there's a real belief among these people that the, that the left is not, is, is hopelessly normy and that, and, and, and corrupted by its, its, its relative integration into mainstream culture, which I think is actually great and a sign of health. Um, and they think that, that, that in their, in their bohemianism, they think that only the radical right is truly radical because it, because mainstream liberal, liberal society rejects it so much. I think the, the, the fact that mainstream liberal society rejects some of that stuff is great and a sign of a relatively healthy society for, for all the other bad things going on. So I don't, I, I, I find that there, you know, I, I think in a lot of cases it is, there is something not disingenuous. There's something theatrical. There's something posy, dramatic about this. It's a, a kind of histrionics of 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 public behavior of political. It's a it's a it's a it's a performance of politics. But um, you know, fortunately, it doesn't lend itself to organization. <laughs> yeah. It does. It does lead to Patreon subscriptions. I've I've seen, and in, inviting Steve Bannon on to your podcast. But in any case, Ryan, jump in. You want to get in, Ryan? I can tell. <laughs> I just wanted to. Uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald was on. Um, he was on Tucker Carlson. Yes. Uh, as he as he is on like almost a like weekly guest on Tucker Carlson, and he he's talking about Democrats, and he says. Um, they're trying to harness corporate and monopoly power to silence everyone who disagrees with them. The very hallmark, the epitome of the fascism they claim to be fighting, but which in reality they embody, which is, 
Like, like that's great. That's like classic Greenwald. Cause he, the only type of argument he knows how to make is the hypocrisy. Gotcha. Like, He's that, like oh, you're the real. Da, 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 da. Yeah. But, but, you know, coming back to our fascism discussion, whether it's like inadvisable to say that it's fascist to kick Donald Trump off Twitter. I mean, I would say it's a lot more fascist to try to storm the Capitol building <laughs> and like, like cut off Nancy Pelosi's head than it is to ban Donald Trump from Twitter. I think that's, I will, that will stand up to argument. I will, I will make that case. Right. I mean, that's where it's like, well, I mean, you could argue, I suppose it's authoritarian. I mean, it's using the power of the state or, or, or the, not the power. Of the state. It's coercive. It's coercive. It's co- Yeah. But as we've been lectured so many times, coercion and authoritarianism is not the same as fascism. <laughs> like, it, yeah, they're, they're coercive. They're, they're obviously, I mean, there's, a, there's always going to be some level of coercion in society and it's not pretty, but that doesn't make every instance of it, oh, well, that's just as bad and just as authoritarian. When you're trying to prevent, like, it's not, it, it, I mean, it's not, it's not even worth arguing against. It, it's just like, when when you're trying to prevent somebody from, um, you know, like committing, like drumming up a crowd to like do a lynching, you can't be like, wow, they really had a free speech right to, to do that sort of thing. I mean, come on. Come on. Yeah. Well, and it's different. And it, it, it just takes a little bit of nuance because, you know, a friend of the pod, Robert Hockett, has gone on Tucker Carlson to argue for the Green New Deal. But like – it's different to use the platform of somebody with millions of viewers to argue for the Green New Deal than to go on basically a, a, a pro-white supremacist uh, talk show host to talk about how the Democrats are the fascists, right? Like, like those are fundamentally different appearances on the same show. Uh, and, yeah. and I think so. So it's just you are uh, you are arguing with Tucker Carlson versus agreeing with his terrible opinions, yes. which are wrong and evil. Like those are the differences, <laughs> yeah. and it's not hard to figure out which is which. I mean, it's Bernie, really not. Bernie go. Bernie did Fox News Town Hall, was where he amazing. had he had the audience eating out of his hand, cheering, cheering Do for you Medicare want for all, free healthcare. Yes, we want free healthcare, Bernie. It's like he knows what he's doing there. He's not saying, yeah, Tucker Carlson, Nancy Pelosi is the true fascist. <laughs> like, right. and similarly, it's not hard to critique neoliberalism and the, the democratic establishment that represents it um, while appreciating how it's distinct, you know? So, so for example, Ryan and I, uh, we, we've talked about this before. We, we were in, in Austin, Texas once, and there was like a, um, a parade and it was like an LGBT, you know, Q uh, pride parade, which is great. But then we saw like Google sponsorships and all these corporate, like, sp- and, and we're like, we're, we're like, this is both good and bad, right? Like, obviously this yeah. is, this is, it's great that it's so popular that, uh, corporations see the benefit in promoting these emancipatory views. At the same time, they are definitely trying to co-opt them. And this is definitely not what emancipation looks like. And we can do both at the same time. We, and same thing as, as you wrote about Black Lives Matter and, and Antifa, right? Like the, there are good things about it being so widely accepted. And then there's co- co-option that we have to be careful about, right? Right. Well, I mean, you got to look at these things dialectically and realize that exactly. there, there are two, like, yeah, I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be a successful portion of the message or, or, or the, or, or of what you want institutionalized. And there's going to be something lost. And That's right. you, you constantly have to analyze situations and say, here's what we should emphasize 
Yes, it's very nice that they do this now. Very good, good. You're, you're a nice company that you don't like openly discriminate, but not pat people on the back too much or just say, haven't, yeah. we, haven't we really got there as a society once they're saying, you're just like, no, you're full. Right. I, like, you're still full of it. I'm still going to, I'm still going to strike. I'm still going to boycott. I'm still going to put pressure. And yeah, it's very nice that you do this and you should do more. Um, but, you know, I think that there's a weird thing that sees that stuff. And can't even get any dialectical anything out of it. Right, right. And it's right. just like, oh, that's a sign of utter. It, th- okay, this is this is the core of the issue for me. Is that this is a philosophy of despair? It's a it's a politics yep. of to use the wonderful title of a book by Fritz Stern about pre um, Germany, you know, um, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, and proto fascism there. It's a politics of cultural despair. It's a belief that no progress, no signs of progress, no signs of anything are real. And everything that happens is a mystification and a lie. And, and, and there's nothing happening. And, and some violent, some big action has to be taken to break through that. And this is where you get the sympathy with this very despairing and dark um, perspective of the radical of the radical right, the fascist right. Um, and I think that's very disturbing. And I don't like yeah. it. it. It has the Schmidtian, the Schmidtian friend enemy distinction as well, right? Yes, you're, you're with you're with us or against us. Either this specific tactic to get Medicare for all, which is totally impromptu and has no organizing behind it, and really is disapproved of by everyone that knows what they're talking about. Either you're with us on this hashtag force the vote, or you're the en- you're the enemy. You're 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 part of right. There's no deliberation. Yeah, yeah. There's no deliberation. They're, they're just like, we've made a decision that this is the strike, yeah, this right. is the tactic, and that you, and this is the line, and if you don't follow it, you, I mean, it's absurd. And this is- Tell me what, John, it sounds kind of fascist to me, what they're doing. <laughs> I mean... But, ser- but seriously, right? Like, it's like top-down, like, binary, and the opposite of what, like, solidarity, comradeship, and socialist politics should be about. I mean, I don't want to, I would say that, I think that this, I think here's where I, I to, to bring it back to the beginning about fascism, I subscribe to the belief that the fundaments of fascism were in place uh, in Europe before the World War One, uh, in the sense that there was this cultural revolt against um democracy liberal democracy and democracy and that was mixed up with a with a uh, fear and rejection of the socialist left um and this this kind of reactionary politics which is based on a kind of despairing view of the state of, state of culture and this and possibility of progress which kind of you know sad, sadly one has to say was sort of confirmed by the horror of the first world war um it's a similar the uh, here's what again just to say fascism and proto-fascism are important contexts to, to understand what sort of politics are possible and what sort of patholo- pathological politics can can kind of bloom from these these sort of postures of, of, of cultural despair and um, non-solidarity and 
you know, I, I, that's that's my interest in bringing this stuff up is not to yeah. say is, is to say that, you know, like there are a lot of very dark places this can go and you have to be cognizant of what you're practicing and what you're putting into the world and what imaginative realm yeah. that you're right. occupying and bringing. Absolutely. And if yeah. you're if you're bringing if you're living in a world of utter despair the only politics in the world of utter despair are fascist politics. Do you agree with this? Because because I, I, I think it's better to say, look how scary Trump is. I'm going to tell you about all the, the normie Republicans you thought were cool to compromise with, how they're scary too, and they're more fascist than you think, rather than let's downplay Trump and Trumpism because we want people to be more aware of how, you know, the traditional Republicans are bad too. It's like, well, if you want to accomplish that, shouldn't you do the opposite move? <laughs> right. Just say, well, just say like, look, you know, this is the, he is the, he is the phenomenon. He yeah. ripped up and all the, the cover off of everything. He showed it for all of what it was. Exactly right. And he showed the stupidity and the squalor of it. And it was, a, it, there is a transformation of quantity here. It's not merely that this was something, it's about like, you know, again, trying to think dialectically, it's a transformation of quantity into quality. And there was something that gained momentum that Republicans were playing with, and it kind of flipped the switch into something, okay, real. And like, it is now something else. It, it yeah. was, you can see the, 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 the beginnings of it. And, you know, obviously there's lots of precedents and lots of bad things that are happening in the U.S., but it has kind of reached a fever momentum that, that it, it didn't have before. I don't think that's to suggest it's going to be successful, but let's recognize that it's become a new thing and right. it, it has its own, it's its own form. It's its own shape now. And I think to understand the structure, the, the, the structure, not only organization and power and stuff of these politics, but the structure of imagination and yeah. fantasy and myth that animates these politics really clues you into a lot of things to um, avoid and to yeah. say is not the sign of a of healthy democratic uh, politics. Yeah, yeah. The, the elective the elective affinities, as Goethe and then Corey Robin like to use in, in drawing a parallel between Nietzsche and Hayek. Um, but also, like the the there is, I think, a danger though, because. You know, I buy into the socialism or barbarism dichotomy in a sense because, the, the, you know, Schmidt in his crisis of parliamentary democracy was on to something. And, and the idea that the response to Trump and the response to the Republicans can be pure proceduralism and pure like democratic reforms is kind of what we were talking about is the problem. And, and the fact that you need to embrace these substantive things that help people, um, there is a danger that the, that the left uh, doesn't push hard enough for that. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it needs to be there needs to be popular mobilization whether in the form of election or in the form of strikes, grassroots organizing. I think that these reforms in society have to be pushed along through popular demonstrations of, and, you know, protests, literally having protests, demonstrations of popular will. This is not a matter of leaving it all up to the government. This is a, a participatory democratic vision, uh, and it includes a portion of politics that's practiced through parliamentary and you know, electoral means, but it's not the only means which politics is practiced. And I think, you know, not giving up on any of those avenues and taking this attitude of this kind of petulant attitude of despair and being like, oh, well, what's weird about them the, the, is that they were sort of 
these people think that Bernie is one of them, and I don't think he is, some of these people. And they think that he was trying to stage this plebiscitary revolt against the party system. And I think he was trying to take over the Democratic Party, like, yeah. and, and still is, and got all power to him. And right. I think that he understands how the U.S. government works and how political organizing works and how coalition mm-hmm. – he talks – relentlessly i mean the early you go back to youtube videos of bernie like talking mm-hmm. to like high school students he keeps he's like coalition politics coalition right. politics. Yeah. like so he he has yeah. a deep understanding of these <laughs> of these yeah. of these you know strategies and and, a, and i think you know a real a real honest to god belief in in in, a, in living in a democratic society he, he, he is a, a, when he says he's a democratic socialist he means it and 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 i don't think that you know he is the avatar for this kind of, um, you know, populist histrionic. We're going to make a like a big stand and show everybody how it's all crooked. And and no, I think he's 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 serious about like permanently institutionalizing big, not to use the Warren thing, but big structural change. <laughs> <laughs> big structural Bailey. Yeah. In in. In the U.S., uh, in, the, in the way that U.S. you know democracy works and and, and will become a more democratic society. So I, I, that's my but that's my just interpretation of Bernie's politics and everything he said. Yeah, and what he does. It speaks to Bernie's strength as a politician that he could bring on a lot of very disaffected people who could see themselves in him, while at the same time being you know basically an Edward Bernstein reformist you know, socialist to say that like you should grab up what you can through the democratic process and, you know, pocket that and move forward and not, you know, move towards some sort of insurrectionary break. And I think, you know, maybe to just close off the conversation on, on uh, the, the, you know, possible red Brown Alliance, we can, we can return to the history of 1930s Germany. What happened with the first potential red Brown Alliance in that country? Because there kind of was there like, I was reading a little bit about this history. Uh, the 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 Nazis and the communists made certain uh, tactical alliances uh, in in a, f- a few procedural forms uh, un- under the instructions of Stalin. Um, you know, they they said that the 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 uh, you know the main enemy was to be the the Social Democratic Party. Of course, they so called social the, fascists. Yep, that was that was the phrase. Um, and you know, the, the slogan was that af- after Hitler, our turn, uh, and in the, in the 19, I believe 1931 Lantag referendum, uh, you know, Stalin told the, the, uh, communists in the state of Prussia to vote with the Nazis to do that. I'm not even sure what it, what it, what it would have accomplished, but like that was the, I think they a strike together as well. Yeah. And it, there, there were a number of a whole bunch of lesser, you know, sort of tactical alliances. And then I think mo- maybe most importantly, the communists would not ally with the Social Democratic Party and all the when when the when the Nazis were coming to power in the in the ni- 1932, when they were the biggest party, they wouldn't they would not form a pro-democracy coalition with the SPD. Um and they they never like they would have been a majority in that you know and you could say there's a lot of reasons for that you know the 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 S, the, the social dem 
A lot of bad blood. They killed Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht and, and so on and so forth. But you could say in concrete terms, how did that, you know, helping, basically helping the Nazis destroy the Weimar Republic, they all fucking got killed. Uh, Ernst Talman, who was the leader of the KPD, uh, he was immediately put into a concentration camp. Um, you know, every co- the very first people that the Nazis rounded up were the communists. That's how that saying goes. First, they came for the communists. And I just I said nothing because I was not a communist. Um, but uh, uh, after that, you know, the few people that did escape Germany and into the Soviet Union, they were killed in the Great Purge, almost all of them. And Ernst Talman himself was executed on the personal orders of Hitler in Buchenwald in 1944. And so like this, this whole, it's, I mean, it's a different context because uh, the, the, you know, th- this was all happening in the orders of Stalin and it was a dictatorial party operating on like, like the instructions of like a foreign, you know, a monarch basically. But I think it was tapping into some of the same type of like, let's burn down the system. Like, like it can't be worse than all the libs. Like, no, it definitely can. And if like Jimmy Dore did an interview with a boogaloo boy, like yeah, one of these no, people, I was like, to point that out. the very first people that the boogaloo people would would kill if they were to come to power in some, you know, in a right wing coup would be Jimmy Dore and people who watch Jimmy Dore on YouTube. Like, like don't be stupid about this. These people, they think you're dumb and they will not allow you, you know, the, the concentration camps will be filled up with you first and then the libs. And you will feel very silly afterwards. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, let's just talk about a slight, I mean, it's still drastic, but, but I like to talk about the Third Republic in France as, as, a, as a touchstone, which had a kind of different sort of fascism or, or, or radical far right and was, you know, a, a kind of longer term democracy than, than, than the Weimar Republic. But I think what happens is like, even when these right wing movements don't become powerful enough to, take over the the atmosphere of defeat and loss of faith in democratic government and the lack of belief that through democratic life and we can accomplish something is is just as bad in a way and that this sort of and I think that's sort of what destroyed France and, and made them fall I mean to, to, to Germany was like it was the Republic no one believed in it anymore. And, and I think yeah. in, in the U.S., you know, it's just as likely that we'll slip through through cynicism and a lack of belief. We'll slip into some kind of I don't I don't know if it's going to be some kind of horrible genocidal situation, but some kind of really bad, you know, senile authoritarian regime that is just accentuates the worst part of America already has kind of like what we just lived through, but for a longer time and with worse consequences because people lose, just, just get cynical and drop it and don't, and don't want to involve themselves in politics and just say, well, you know, just lose belief in it. And I think that it's important to resist the, 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 the gloom, the despair over political action and organization 
and and not identify with the kinds of nihilistic and cynical forces that actually want to kill kill democracy in this country. So that's that's what I'm saying. I, there there are lots of scenarios that are bad that are not the the ultimate yes. evil. There is a kind of just losing <clears throat> the faith and just falling into some kind of really sad, depressing, but ultimately kind of livable quasi-dictatorship like they have in Russia or Turkey or something like that, where where it's just like, yeah, there's some hints of withered democracy, but it, well, less so in Russia, but in Turkey where there's still some election, but but it's really not real. And and they're run, it's just run by a single party and it's terrible. And, and I think that that's the kind of future that we should fear equally. These more imaginable futures, where and that's what people have to get good at, better at recognizing. And why I think it's okay to talk about fascism is because you have to start looking at even the weak and bad and dumb authoritarianisms are still horrible setbacks and destructive setbacks for people's lives and what we want to accomplish in this country. And they jeopardize, you know everything we hold dear and maybe not in the in the same kind of cataclysmic way of, as world war ii and the rise of the nazis but in ways that will just make the rest of our living days in the united states just a dull depressing drudgery mm. where we see our dreams fall apart and i don't want to live in that world so i think that there's there's and i think that that is the that's an just as likely or more likely outcome to the proliferation of these politics of despair than, um, you know, some kind of cataclysmic dictatorial takeover. Although I won't rule it out. Yeah. <laughs> you could do a, you know, put on our economist hat and weight these possibilities by their, by their probability of happening. And yeah. So you have very bad, quite unlikely and like pretty bad, pretty likely. And that, yeah, it's the, the comparable just, dangers in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. So, that's it's it's been well over an hour now. I feel like we should probably let you go. Um, but yeah, thank thanks for coming on the show. Sure, this has just been an absolute blast, and I love your show, and it was a great conversation. Yeah, we'll we'll link to your Substack in the description. Uh, uh, and and um, it's pretty good, you know. I I've 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 read a number of Substacks. I read Matt Iglesias's, and uh, yours is definitely better than his. And so <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do I'll do <laughs> I'll do one better than that, John. I'll do one better than that. I've read a lot of Substacks, and and yours is the only one I've sent to my students. Well, that's that means a lot to me, and I I'm really glad you guys like it and get something out of it. It's it's been really fun getting it started, and um, I hope you know I can keep going with it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. For yeah, we, we, we'd love to. We'd love to have you back on. It's to anytime, any absolutely anytime. When Cheers, we inaugurate Dick, Dictator for Life, Marjorie Taylor Greene, you will be our first episode. I don't say I told you so. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you in the next episode.